following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Hebrews 7, we're going to read the entire chapter here, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. So if you're there, please look at verse 1. The writer of Hebrews writes, For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Will you bow your heads with me? 
Jesus, we come to you now as the perfect high priest, and we thank you for this opportunity to consider your greatness, who you are, and how you are so much better than that old priesthood, and how you are so much better than the old sacrifices. You are perfect in every way, and so this morning, may you be glorified, honored. May we be reminded that you are all we need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't remember uh, if I've shared this story with you or not before. I tried to look back through my records. I didn't see any record of it. But if I did, forgive me. And if I didn't, uh, here we go. Most of you know Jamie is from the Chicago area, and we typically will go there one or two times a year to visit family. And it was a couple of years ago we were headed up there at the same time that Nathaniel and I were trying to figure out a little father-son excursion kind of thing we were planning to do together. We hadn't been able to figure out what it was that we were going to do. And again, as you may know, if you know our family well, my son Nathaniel is really into Christian hip-hop, which shouldn't surprise you as cool as I am that he would be into something like that. But, uh, you know, he's really into it. I like it. He loves it. But uh, I just like it. And he really likes this one particular artist named KB who never seems to come to Virginia. But that time that we were going to Chicago, he was going to be performing with For King and Country up in Milwaukee. And so we decided to make that our father-son excursion. We would go up to Milwaukee for a night go to the concert, enjoy that, and then come home. Now, for those of you who have never been to Milwaukee, count yourself blessed. It's not the greatest of cities. Uh, I love my son. That's why I went. But if I never go back to Milwaukee, that's fine. But we we did have a really nice time. Um, I would say that I would definitely go back to another For King and Country concert if one were to come around. They uh, were my favorite concert because of something they didn't do, which was preach a lame sermon in the middle of the concert, which seems to happen at a lot of Christian concerts. I can make my own lame sermons. I don't need those. I can't get singing, so that's why I go to a concert. Uh, But they didn't do that. KB did a good job as well. I can never understand what a rapper is saying when I'm hearing them live. I have to listen to it later to actually understand. And the best part was when the concert was over, we went downstairs to the the area where they had the merchandise table. We were standing by it because sometimes the artists will come out and like take pictures and, you know, sign autographs and stuff. So we were standing by the table and he wasn't coming out. And the guy who's running the table started asking us like, what are you guys doing? We're waiting to see if he'll come out and get any pictures. He's like, oh, okay, well, I don't think he's coming out. Okay, we'll just wait around. We stood there a long time. He finally was like, where are you from? I was like, Virginia. He's like, what? You came all the way from Virginia to CKB in Milwaukee? Oh, you're going to meet him. And so he took us backstage. <laughs> we actually went up the elevator with Jordan Felice. Now, I don't care at all about Jordan Felice. He's like this tall, and he looks like Johnny Depp. But anyway, we uh, went up the elevator and met KB, and he did some pictures. And it was a really fun experience. Nathaniel had a great time, and, and so did I. Now, As I said a moment ago, I like Christian hip-hop or rap. I I don't love it, but I do like it. I think that rap as a musical genre is very interesting because it has the ability to communicate large volumes of truth in very interesting and clever ways. Rap tends to use a lot of wordplay and puns and similes and double meanings and cultural references, and sometimes all at the same time. For example, that night we bought... um, KB's album. It was 100. It was his newest one at the time. And I picked three examples from that particular album just to give you the kind of wordplay I'm talking about. For example, the first one was from his song 100, which is about being 100% committed uh, to the Lord, and it's actually a very good song. He he says, and I'm not going to rap this, by the way. (laughs) I know. I didn't bring the bling. I got to have the bling to do that. I don't have it today. But here's the line from the song. He says, we know our God won't fail us. We know from where our help comes. 
So I put my life at stake, and though there might be blood, I want that well done. Stake, blood, well done, you got it? That's the word play that's going on there. It's, it's punny. It also gets across a good point. Um, here's another one. This is actually one of my favorites from that album. It's called Undefeated. It's a song being sung from God's perspective, almost like when you read God speak to Job at the end of Job, where he's like, where were you when I created the earth? Like, where, where were you when I did all of these amazing things? And Job has to sit there silent. The song is kind of written along those lines, God speaking to the world of like, you know, I'm undefeated, you cannot believe, but I did all these things. And he goes through this list of uh, things God has done at creation. And the last comment is, uh, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. I told Saturn that, which is both a Beyonce and an astronomical reference all mixed together. As a completely off-the-note side note, few people know this. True story, Jordan is a huge Beyonce fan. He really is. And I came in here not too long ago. I walked in, and he didn't know I was coming. I walked in the building, and he had Beyonce blaring on all the speakers. And even though he's not a single lady, he did have his hands up. I'm just saying. <laughs> True story. All right, next, uh, third song. That joke was actually written for a completely different person who it was much funnier for. But anyway, I never got to use it because I chickened out. I gave it to Jordan instead. Uh, doubts was the third song, and it's a song where he is just going through a number of doubts that you face in the Christian life. I mean, all of us would go through. And then it, like about two-thirds of the way through the song, he begins to respond to those doubts with truth from Scripture of who we are. And he's making a comment about us being uh, the bride of Christ. He says it like this, I'm the bride of a king like Coretta Scott free. God let us off the hook forever and ever. So you have a cultural historical reference kind of mixed in there. So you get the idea. I could go on, but I think that makes sense. It's, rap is filled with this kind of cleverness. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because as I was studying in Hebrews 7, that was the concept of the word that kept standing out to me was this idea of cleverness. This is clearly obvious. The writer of Hebrews here is drawing a series of direct connections between this obscure Old Testament character Melchizedek, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, there are multiple plays on words, uh, similes, cultural references, all kind of getting mixed together here in his presentation. And without meaning any disrespect to the writer of Hebrews, any disrespect to the Holy Spirit who inspired him, it's very clever. It's a very clever way of, of putting out this truth. But what makes it particularly clever, in my opinion, is the fact that when you look at the Scriptures there is very little information given about this guy named Melchizedek. Now, here's our quick little Bible trivia question of the morning. Uh, think about it for a second, and then someone can shout out an answer if you think you know it. How many books in the Old Testament even mention in any way, shape, or form this Old Testament character, Melchizedek? How many do you think, how many books in the Old Testament? Give me a number. One, two, I'll give you a hint. Zero. No, it can't be zero. We're talking about it. All right. Uh, it's, it's more than one, it's less than three. All right, it's two, very good. So two, and you're actually gonna turn to the first of these. Go to Genesis 14 with me for a moment. Genesis 14 is the main one. Uh, just to set it up for you, in Genesis 14, these kings have come and have raided the part of Palestine that Abram is living in at the time. They've taken a number of people captive. They've taken a lot of uh, their stuff captive. So Abram puts together like a commando force to go after them. He catches them. He defeats them. And he's bringing the, the captives and all the spoil back to where it started. And on the way, they meet a couple of people, one of whom is Melchizedek. And we're only going to read that section there where he 
interacts with this guy Melchizedek. This is Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, which I'll pause there and just help you understand. That's Moses' way of telling you that even in the days of Abraham, there were still some other people who were worshiping Yahweh. Melchizedek is one of them. He is priest of God Most High, of Yahweh. And, And Melchizedek blesses Abram and says to him, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's the whole episode with Melchizedek right there. In just those few verses, the story continues, and you never hear about him again in the book of Genesis. Now, the other location in the Old Testament that you hear about this guy Melchizedek is in Psalm 110. You don't need to turn there, but just note it if you want. But listen for now. We'll actually come back to it in a moment and discuss it a little more. But Psalm 110 is unique because it's a messianic psalm. It is David singing about his coming descendant, who will be the Messiah. And so as you read that psalm, you've got all these statements being made about this descendant of David who's coming, who will be the Messiah. And in one of those statements, verse 4, David writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as a just a Another little interesting side note of trivia here. As we looked at both of those passages, how many times was Melchizedek's name used in total in those two passages? Anyone keep up with it as we were reading? It's a grand total of two, one in each, okay? One in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 110. That's it. So you've got the entirety of the Old Testament, everything it says about Melchizedek, four verses long, two mentions of his name. That's all you got. Now, Bible trivia question number two. In how many books of the New Testament is this character Melchizedek talked about? You know it's at least one, okay? But how many total books of the New Testament is this Old Testament Melchizedek talked about? Anyone want to throw out a guess? One? Okay, here you go. I'll help you. You know it's at least one, but it's also less than two. So it's one. All right, there you go. The writer of Hebrews is the only one who mentions him, but he does it repeatedly. He talks about him in Hebrews 5 in Hebrews 6, and then he gives almost an entire chapter to him in Hebrews 7. And in total, he he mentions his name eight times. So it's like four times as much as the Old Testament. In other words, he gets a lot of mileage off of a very small amount of information. He spends a lot of time teaching about this guy from not a lot of of information in the text, and that's intriguing to me. And I want to walk us through this this morning uh, in just briefly in a little bit different format than I normally would. Normally, I would take us through a text and you'll explain it verse by verse, and then we would come back at the end, maybe make some application. There's no way I'm walking through Hebrews 7 in the next 25 minutes or whatever I've got left here. So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to skip right to the application. But as I give these three points of application to you, I will explain each of them and show you details from the text to help you make sense of why we're saying these various things, because I think there's some helpful thoughts for us here this morning. So here are three applications for us from the writer of Hebrews' use of Melchizedek here in Hebrews chapter 7. First, I want to make a hermeneutical application, a hermeneutical application. And if you're not familiar with what the word hermeneutics means, it's just a fancy word to describe our system of Bible interpretation. Okay, So we all have one. We all have a way of, of reading God's word and knowing what's valid or invalid in terms of how we go about interpreting it. That would be hermeneutics. And for those of you who are not aware of this, 
the writer of Hebrews' use of Melchizedek here in this particular passage that I read to you this morning has been misused by many, many, many Christians, people over the, the past 2,000 years as a justification for something called typology as being a, a, a just a general hermeneutic that you could use for the whole Bible. And all God's people said, huh, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, I know that was complicated. He said, Stacy, uh, what is typology and, and what does it mean to even say that something is a type of Christ? Well, let me answer those questions in reverse order and then maybe I'll help you out. What, what does it mean to say that Melchizedek here in Hebrews 7 is a type of Christ? Well, all I mean by that is that the writer of Hebrews is drawing a series of direct connections of similarities between this character, Melchizedek, and Jesus Christ. In other words, he's trying to show us how they're similar. So if you look back through uh, verses 1 through 10, for example, you'll notice that he, he draws attention to Melchizedek's name. Well, the name Melchizedek, if you literally were to translate it out, means king of righteousness. Well, who's the real king of righteousness? Jesus is the real king of righteousness. So even in his name, he kind of points to who Jesus is. He's also to, we're told that he's the king of a city called Salem. Well, what does the word Salem mean literally translated? It means peace. Salem, shalom, you can hear the, the two words, their similarity there. So he's the king of, well, who's the ultimate king of peace? You know, Jesus, all right? Even in the fact that we're not told anything about Melchizedek's birth or his death, well, was he born? Yes. Did he die? Yes. But none of that's mentioned in the text. And so even in that, he's like, he's like he has no beginning and no end. Guess who else has no beginning and no end? Jesus has So. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about here. He's showing us all of these direct connections between Jesus and Melchizedek as if Melchizedek is a type, as a picture of Jesus that we could look at and learn some things about him because of this. So he's using these connections to make his point. Now then, that you kind of understand what a type of Jesus is to the question of what then is typology? Well, typology is taking that same approach except with just like all of Scripture indiscriminately. Just like, I'm going to find Jesus on every plank of the ark. Like every ark, every, every nail, Jesus' face is imprinted on it somewhere. I'm going to see it and, and try to find it that way. And, and that's the problem with that kind of approach. Clearly, there are individuals and incidents in the Old Testament that we are told are meant to point us to Jesus to help us understand him and who he is. But that doesn't mean I, I need to be looking for him on every blade of grass in, in Judea. You know, he, it all points to him, but... Not everything that you see in Scripture is a type of Christ, and so that approach is, it has that problem. Obviously, then, using this passage as a justification for finding Christ on, you know, every plank of the ark, like I just said, would be a mishandling of the text. But even more than that, it's actually a mishandling of the author's intention here, of what he's even trying to do in this particular passage let me just quickly explain. As you scan the text, just look down at verses 1 through 10, you notice that the author goes to great pains to point out many details, specific details from the Genesis 14 account. He talks about Melchizedek's titles. He talks about the context of the meeting, about Abraham's tithe, about the blessing that's given, even some of the cultural significance of the blessing and all the things that go into that. 
you also notice that there's a great amount of emphasis on some of the details that are not mentioned in Genesis 14. For the example, that there's no birth story or death story or there's no genealogy, that we're never told that he stops being a priest. He, he draws our attention to all that as well. And so if all we had was verses 1 through 10, I might be able to say, okay, well, if he can get all of that, you know, all of these amazing comments about Jesus from these random details that either are or aren't in the story, well, maybe there would be some justification, but, but that's not all there is. If you look down to verses 15 through 19, you see that right smack dab in the middle of that section, the writer of Hebrews quotes the one and only other passage where we see Melchizedek mentioned in that Psalm 110. Now, just like I don't have time to fully develop uh, Hebrews 7 or Genesis 14, I also don't have time to fully develop Psalm 110, but you should go home and read it today. You're actually already more familiar with that Psalm than you know because Jesus references it himself sometimes. Remember the, the episode where the Pharisees came and they're trying to get him ensnared about his authority? He says, okay, you answer this question, I'll answer yours. What did David mean when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my you know, feet till I make your enemies your footstool? If, if David's writing to his son, why does he call him Lord? Remember that, that interchange between the Pharisees and Jesus? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And so they walk away and, and nothing happens. That's this psalm. It's the same messianic psalm that we're seeing here. And, and so, you know, in verse 4 of that psalm, as David is talking about his coming descendant, the Messiah, that's where he makes this comment, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, that's the line that's quoted here. And it is that divine inspired pronouncement that the writer of Hebrews is using to justify his interpretation of Genesis 14. When David wrote that, did he, could he see Jesus specifically? No, the writer of Hebrews could. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And now he's reading Psalm 110 about Jesus, understanding all these comments are being made about Jesus. He reads this line, he's like, well, that helps me understand Genesis 14 better. It's something we call interpreting Scripture by Scripture. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Interpreting Scripture by Scripture. In other words, it's just not making stuff up, but letting the Scriptures drive your understanding of the text at each and every point. And so rather than being a justification for the use of typology, I would argue Hebrews 7 provides us with a, a biblical defense of the very hermeneutic that we believe is right here at Cornerstone, where we have context matter, and scripture matters, and the intent of the author matters, and you take scriptures that are clear and help you understand scriptures that aren't clear. It's, it's that very approach on display. And even, this is a quick little side comment in regards to preaching, particularly our preaching from the Old Testament, this serves as a great example for us as well, because how do we go about rightly interpreting and understanding the Old Testament in our personal Bible study or public preaching like this? That, you know, Jesus told us, told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as he opened the scriptures to them, that all the scriptures were about him. You know, as he's saying that, what are the scriptures at that point? What are all the scriptures? They're all the Old Testament scriptures. He's like, it's all about me, but, but even in that, he's He's not taking it to the extreme that some have, and now he's, you know, he's on every smooth stone in David's pouch. No, 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 no. There are times in Scripture where you will be clearly told, by, particularly by the New Testament writers, this is a picture of Jesus. This is an incident that's meant to teach you about Jesus, to point you back to Jesus. When you see those, man, latch on to them, understand them, recognize that you're being given insight into the Old Testament that you may not otherwise have had. 
but recognize that the whole story is about him. But this is just a good example of how we go about interpreting Scripture here in Hebrews 7. Second, I want to make a gospel application. Make a gospel application. And this isn't very complicated and won't take too much time because the writer's point here is very, very clear. In Psalm 110, as David is writing that psalm, he's writing it to make it clear that his descendant, this coming Messiah, will both be a new type of king and a new type of priest. In other words, this coming Messiah is going to upend everything in a good way, okay? Everything's going to be changed. And here in Hebrews 7, the writer is focused on the Messiah's role as this new and better priest. It's part of a a much larger argument that extends outside of this chapter. But the, the rise of this priest after the order of Melchizedek here, it signifies that that old order of the priesthood, the the order of Aaron, it's been replaced. That it it wasn't sufficient. It's not that it was bad. It's not that it was wrong. It just it just wasn't enough. And so a change in the priestly order has come, says the writer, and along with it, verse 12, by necessity, a change in the law as well. Both of these former things have been set aside because Jesus has come and fulfilled and completed everything that they were meant to be. Jesus is now this priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, logically then, if a new priestly order has arisen, that means that the way we approach God has changed as well, which is kind of what the book of Hebrews is about. No longer do we approach Yahweh through the Aaronic priesthood with a bull or a goat sacrificed in Jerusalem. We now approach Yahweh through the Melchizedekian priesthood. That's a hard word. Melchizedekian priesthood, that's Jesus with his own blood. That means that Jesus is both the better and perfect priest and at the same time, the better and perfect sacrifice. He's on both sides of the equation. Better and perfect priest, better and perfect sacrifice, forever making intercession for his people. It's one of the major themes of Hebrews. And so then, you know, not only has the way we approach God changed, but then logically, if the priestly order has changed and all this other stuff has changed, it even means the way we worship God has changed. Because not every sacrifice in the Old Testament was being brought as an atonement for sin. Some were being brought for praise, for thanksgiving, for remembrance. Well, guess what you do now? (laughs) You praise God through Jesus. You thank him through Jesus. Your remembrance is through Jesus. Everything comes through Jesus. In fact, somewhere I think in the New Testament, we might get the idea that it's Jesus who's the one who actually pleased the Father, and he is pleased with us only through his son. So it's a gospel application for us. And then third and finally, I want to make a personal or pastoral application for us. And it's actually why I came to this passage, uh, by the way, if you're wondering. Because in verse 28, the writer reminds us that the law appointed men in their weakness as high priests. And by weakness, he's referring both to the fact that the human priests cannot by themselves do anything to, to help the people of Israel. Okay, they're, they're, they're sinners, Right? They're, they're sinners. They, they too have to come every day and make a sacrifice first for themselves and then for the people, and that's it every day, every day. They keep sinning every day, so it never ends. So they can't do anything in and of themselves to help, but it's also referencing the fact that no human priest can serve forever. If, for no other reason, then he dies. By the sheer fact of death, 
There has to be new priests and new priests and new priests, etc. And in this, the writer is reminding us that Jesus is better than any human priest. First, because he is, verse 26, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. His sacrifice is perfect, complete, once for all. And then secondly, I think verse 24 here, because he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, never to die again, raised for eternal eternity, to, to live as our priest. And this is why, you know, making it now personal for me, why for over 10 years now, I, I have tried to consistently remind us that Cornerstone is not about any man. I'm not being consistent with many things in life, but I think I have been consistent on this one point, so I'm, I'm happy with this one, all right? It's not about any man. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not going to be about Chris when he takes over in this role. It's going to be about any of the other elders. There's, there's no one. Because we all share the same weaknesses of these old priests, right? We're all sinners. We're all weak and foolish. It, none of us have anything special or better than anyone else. And if nothing else, we're all going to die. Unless Jesus comes back and brings this world to a conclusion, we're all going to die. Jesus is the only one and only thing that we can put our trust in, ever, ever. And I want you to remember that, to put your hope in Jesus. He is not only the perfect and true high priest, he's the perfect and true pastor of Cornerstone and of every church that gathers in his name. And I hope that you are reminded today of the very thing that the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw our attention to here in this section, and that is the superiority, centrality, and sufficiency of Jesus. I've said this before, I'll say it again and I'll be done. The more I read the New Testament, the more I study, the longer I live and just understand what it means to walk with Jesus, the more I'm reminded of the fact that we can do nothing without him nothing. On your best day, you can't do anything without him. So never forget that. That's not just for salvation. That's for all of life. Never forget that. And I exhort you and encourage you to draw near to God through him. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we confess this morning we can do nothing without you. You are the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. It is through your blood alone that we have been accepted by the Father. You've made all these things new in you. And you're the only one we ever can trust. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to remember that and to be encouraged by that truth, to, to go forth from here and forever, <laughs> for the rest of our lives, trust you alone because you are sufficient. You are enough. We sing these kinds of songs all the time. And I know sometimes they... They're just trite exercises for us. We don't even think about what we're saying. But I pray that, that today we will be encouraged and reminded of your superiority, sufficiency, and centrality in all things, in Cornerstone and across all of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.